Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. As I talked about last week, the English word love is often inadequate to describe both the cornucopia of emotions that we feel around what we call love, but also inadequate to the moral call of what has been considered a higher ethics that insists that we go that extra mile and we love our neighbors, even the surly ones. And loving our neighbors as ourselves and loving our enemies is not about falling into love, is it? It's about uh, rope climbing for love, mountain climbing for love, some kind of hard work. Acknowledging the hard work of loving your neighbor and forgiving your enemy led Two, as I discussed last week, the nonviolent tactics that produced massive change during the civil rights era. Now, as you know, this is Black History Month. The staff of the American Humanist Association announced that they invite humanists to celebrate Black Futures Month. Black Futures Month, which I like. Yes, we need to know our history. We need to know where we're coming from yet. We can grow kind of weary and hopeless looking at all the injustices and struggles of the past. What about the future? What about working for a future of love and justice? Martin Luther King Jr. knew history very well. He had studied the sermons of one of the most fierce orators of the abolition of slavery movement just previous to the Civil War. Reverend Theodore Parker, who said this. Look at the facts of the world. You see a continual and progressive triumph of the right, meaning the right thing. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience, but from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Things refused to be mismanaged long. Jefferson trembled when he thought of slavery and remembered that God is just. Ere long, all America will tremble. Now, in the event, Parker died of tuberculosis in 1860, a year before the war began, so he did not live to see the abolition of slavery, which he had fought so hard for. Now, Theodore Parker was a Unitarian minister and a transcendentalist, a disciple of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. As Parker's health declined, Emerson would sometimes stand in for him on Sunday mornings. And Emerson was not a fiery orator. He was a well-known one, but not all that exciting. So he couldn't match Parker's preaching style. But looking at Emerson's writings from that time, 
is very instructive because he's restating many of the ideas that Parker had gleaned from reading Emerson. So Emerson is feeding back on Emerson. Now one Sunday morning, Emerson said this, the moral cause of the world lies behind all else in the mind. The moral cause of the world lies behind all else in the mind. Now many of you know that President Barack Obama also loved to talk about the moral arc of the universe. And when he used the phrase, he would include the idea that we ourselves need to be the ones who are bending it. And most of us today don't understand that concept behind what Parker was saying, and nor do most Americans understand why Martin Luther King Jr. found that concept of a moral universe so important. But as we think about black history and black futures, it's important that we understand that, quote, the moral cause of the world lies behind all else in the mind. But before we get there, we have to back up a little bit and look at some black history to see why Emerson, Parker, and MLK saw the black future in this very old concept of a moral universe. Now, black humanism goes all the way back to kidnapped Africans who were shipped to this hemisphere. I highly recommend Christopher Cameron's marvelous book, Black Freethinkers, A History of African American Secularism. From the beginning, kidnapped Africans, then enslaved Africans, then African Americans have asked a question. If there is a God, how could that God allow the horrors of slavery and white supremacy? It's a good question. This question and challenge goes all the way back in the U.S. Uh, history, and it well summarizes, it's summarized by a contemporary meme that I ran across on Twitter that says this, our ancestors died believing that a white Jesus would save them from their white slave masters. They also lived by Ephesians 6.5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ. Yes, brainwashing is real. So, that pretty well summarizes what's going on here. The, seven, the central humanist theologian of the 20th century was the Reverend Dr. William R. Jones, a UU humanist, a minister, and professor. And Dr. Jones long ago published a book titled, Is God a White Racist? A Preamble to Black Theology. Now, as you might suspect, Dr. Jones answered with a heck yes. Jesus, God is indeed a white racist. How come? Well, because of the, the construct, the very construct of white supremacy. It's a construct used to explain away black oppression, and the sooner we get away from the concept of God, the better. That pretty well summarizes a fairly difficult book to read. Someone who has taken Jones's subtitle, A Preamble to Black Theology, is Dr. Anthony Penn, who's, many of you know, a friend of this congregation. Early in his career as a theologian, Tony was fired from his position at McAllister College when he came out as an atheist. The first place he was asked to speak publicly after that, and as the brouhaha went on, was to come here. 
In such books as Why, Lord, Suffering and Evil in Black Theology, Dr. Penn deconstructs, see how fancy I did that, Erica, see, deconstructing Christianity at noon today, don't miss it unless you have to, right? He goes about deconstructing European Christianity and culturally African-American theology, you pointing out a fundamental idea of humanism, and that is human beings can fix human problems. Well, Dr. Jones goes and turns that right back around. Yes, God is a white racist. Dr. Penn argues that the old teaching that black suffering is redemptive, that's just bogus, right? Black suffering is redemptive. That's what the white Southerners were talking about, and it has gone into a lot of black uh, theology along the way. Dr. Penn says, absolutely no way is that true. Forget about it. It's just human beings making really bad human choices for the wrong reason. And that's the liberal, free-thinking, and humanist stream that goes into uh, the liberation theology that we tend to talk about today. But I do want to look at the other side of the coin for just a few moments, the socially conservative religious attempts to aid in black futures. Now, I've talked a lot recently about William Seymour, brother William J. Seymour, who founded the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century. He was using Galatians 3.28, Christian scripture that taught that uh, even for the message to the least educated, people like my parents who really couldn't even read. But he had this to say, this is Paul speaking, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. That's the center of Pentecostalism. It's fundamentalist, yes, it appeals mostly to poorer and disadvantaged people, yes, but Pentecostals tended to be disengaged from politics because, hey, they were focused on surviving this week so they, uh, and living maybe for the next world. Also, though the roots of Pentecostalism are deep, like humanism, actually it is an early 20th century movement. It's got a lot of roots, but it really comes along to meet the modern problems of the early 20th century. The movement for racial justice began in the denomination usually known as Black Baptist. That's not actually what it is. It's actually the National Baptist Convention. And that's the one, if you're a white Baptist, uh, the American Baptists are, are a segregated, but uh, similar, very similar organization. African-American Baptist organizations are the through line of black community and black resistance from the forced Christianization of kidnapped Africans to the resilience that we see in black communities today. National Baptists have long believed in what was in times past known as uplift of the race, and they've long focused on education in order to do that. Now, as I've mentioned a, a few weeks ago, our very own Reverend Dr. Exodus, J. Exodus Hooper, has been invited to join the Martin Luther King Jr. College of Ministers and Laity, and that induction occurs during a Benjamin Elijah Mays forum. Well, who was Reverend Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays? Yes, there is uh, uh, Jay in, with the plaque that we're going to be seeing inducted in there. 
Benjamin Mays is a key figure in tying together all of the different rivulets that are coming together for a black future. The induction ceremony Jay will be attending at Morehouse College uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, is named in honor of Dr. Hayes, who Martin Luther King called his spiritual mentor. Mays met Martin Luther King Jr. at Morehouse College. Mays was the president at that time, and King was a young student. The old main building, called Graves Hall, and the old quad at Morehouse hold history that's not at first apparent. It's not a steeple when you look at the top of that building. It's a watchtower. And the watchtower was 24-7 to watch for the KKK attacking and ring a bell in order for the students to get indoors. The statue of Mays is out in front of that building, and it's where he stood to preach Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral oration. Now, before that, in this quad, this old quad of the school, was part of the Battle of Atlanta. Gone with the wind, burning of Atlanta, and all of that. Well, part of the battle happened on the grounds of that school before the school was there. And what is now the central quad is a mass grave of over 500 uh, killed Confederates uh, out there in, in front of the building. Now, incoming students are told, don't step on the grass or you won't graduate. But then the graduation is held on the grass so that the graduating students can trample over the 500 dead uh, Confederates there, symbolically overcoming uh, white supremacy. Now, Benjamin Mays was the child of parents born into slavery, and neither of his parents had any education at all. In the South, when Mays was young, black Baptist churches and black ministers had to be sponsored by white churches and white ministers, meaning overseen, right? They're watching to see what kind of politics is going on in the church. To counter the oppressive censorship, black churches learned to hide their message in plain sight. We all know about those great old gospel lyrics, but Big River or going over Jordan is the Ohio River because that's where freedom was. Follow the drinking gourd is about watching that uh, the Big Dipper up there because that's how you get to the north. And of course, walk in the water children, which is about how not to be tracked and how to escape the hunting dogs. Naturally enough, the Exodus story, J. Exodus Hooper, right? The Exodus story in Hebrew scripture would become the central set of metaphors encoding the freedom message. But even as the smallest uh, phrase from uh, scripture can fit in suddenly. So uh, you get something like, okay, this is a, uh, Luke 9, 62. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, what would, what's that got to do with freedom, right? Well, you probably know the good old hymn from the civil rights uh, anthem days. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on is where that went to. Freedom's name is mighty sweet, and soon we're going to meet. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. You see how that fits together. It's going to be dodgeable. Oh, I wasn't talking about that, right? Uh, Paul and Silas in prison, a very famous story from Acts. It becomes Paul and Silas thought they was lost. Dungeon shook and the chains come off, right? Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. 
So that complex use of metaphor and imagery is still important in black cultural preaching today. Nowadays, you might hear, check your feet. Which way are they going? I heard that a couple of weeks ago. Are you marching toward freedom or are you marching back toward Pharaoh? Yeah. Check your feet. It began to occur to ministers of Mays' generation, the generation of Martin Luther King Sr., Daddy King, that Christianity had indeed been used to oppress Africans, just as the meme says, but look at this, the black tradition has never bought that message, you know? So what do we have that we can share in the wider communities? The problem then was that many white people were listening to bad theology in the South. That must be what was going on. So we will begin to share our theology out into the white community so people can hear that. The black tradition is about liberation. So let's begin talking about that. All right. And as I mentioned last week, the African-American Baptists in the early 20th century came to see calls of turning the other cheek and blessing those that curse you. That's going to become nonviolence because we will weaponize love because they won't know how to deal with people who are loving. In other words, Jesus is saying, bless those who curse you because it will really mess with their minds, right? It will really mess with their minds. Now, African-American free thinking joined with Unitarian and Universalist uh, thinking and ethical culture as, all, as these streams begin to come together during the 20th century. African-American secular thinking joined the American Humanist Association. Pentecostalism that names racism and genderism as demons to be cast out, well, that's the fastest growing religion in the world today. And Benjamin Mays traveled with a sharecropper shack from a sharecropper shack in Georgia to the, in the Jim Crow South with essentially no power whatsoever to eventually ride around with the president on Air Force One. The black church tradition turned love your neighbor and turn the other cheek into a nonviolent civil disobedience that has continued to accomplish civil liberties and human flourishing. Which brings me back to us. In a couple of weeks, I'm gonna be speaking at the New York uh, Society for Ethical Culture, and I will be speaking at a, at a ceremony to induct Jay as one of their leaders there. He's gonna stay here. He's just jetting around a lot, okay? But he's, he's in several different places because he's brilliant. At that ceremony in New York, I will be saying that we are witnessing a wedding a wedding of the streams that have made several forms of black liberation theology in this country. Jay was raised, as I was, Pentecostal. Jay became a humanist and became a leader of the ethical culture movement. Then Jay became clergy here, the birthplace of congregational humanism in the Unitarian tradition. And now Jay works closely with the American Humanist Association, which is the secular part of our movement. And now Jay joins a circle of ministers and scholars that represent black culture and the black, the black cultural through line of Baptist preaching. How about that? All of those are part of Jay's thinking, all right? Now, this, I've studied a lot of humanist history. This is absolutely historic. Jay is the first ever to do all of that. Black history, but that's a good black future. Huh? Black futures. And we are helping to do that right here at First Unitarian Society. Free thinking, transcendentalism, 
humanism have been in the struggle for liberation from the beginning, and we are still doing the work of love. So let's celebrate this February and of all months, Black History Month, but more Black Futures Month, and then let's make all them, all them months that. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.